week, um, let me look at here at the beginning. She wanted us to right away look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses uh, 1 to 17 in relationship to 1829 and see what it is that we saw in those two, how they related to one another. Now, I know that for some people, the, just the question alone is like, what does she mean, right? They're like, I'm not quite sure what it is that you're digging for. But in, in my processing that question and getting ready to answer it, I got to thinking about just the whole context of the book. How does the book itself relate to one another, right? Um, going back, and we've done this several times, we've gone back and we've looked at the paragraph titles and see the sequence of them and the flow of thought and how things are presented in this book. But the book, you know, it, it presents to us a major, a major theme, right? But answer this question for me, because this is where I started. Does the major theme that Jesus is better, right, better than, does that help you to interpret those difficult passages? Did you think it helped you to actually come to an understanding about those difficult places. No, it didn't for me. Now, if anybody, they, if it did, that, that would, you know, would be great for you, but <laughs> I got to tell you, for me, it's, so if I struggled with it, I figured probably there are others struggling too, because I, I just, I am such a um, base level kind of a thinker. I'm not a, 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 a uh, academia kind of a thinker. I am just Joe Blow, which is why I know that this is a spiritual gifting that God has put me where he's put me, and I also know that he put me here for the purpose of helping others like me to grab hold of the word of God and to really try to come to some sound interpretations on it. So when I ask questions, sometimes my questions are really low level, you know, they're like really down here. But I think that's an important quality in doing an inductive study because the point to indu inductive Bible study is to take the whole and break it down just to its lowest base points, right? Examine those minor little individual pieces and then, and then take it back and lay it into the fuller picture to get a better insight, correct? All right, so coming to the subject of setting context and when I looked at the better than and you go through progressively through this book and you, you're looking at each chapter sometimes the chapters were not to me as clear particularly when you hit those difficult places so I decided I was going to analyze context based on because now we're in chapter 13 we've done the whole book right and so when I was asked to handle this one question about the relationship in chapter 12 of the first 17 verses to the last few verses of it, that made me think, well, let's reanalyze context setting as well, just for fun. Is there a way to help develop our understanding of the context just a little bit better, a little bit m more details than, than simply the one particular topic of Jesus is better than? We know Jesus is better than is the major subject in here, right? But let's, let's talk of it, about it from this perspective. Yes? Well, first, first question to me is, why are you saying this in the first place? You know, I mean, to the author. Yes. Why are you making the point? Very good. Okay, so now you, op you open me right up. W first and foremost, we know, that, we know that there's basically four major people or players in this book, right? So I decided to kind of view it from the, that perspective. What are the major... Um, 
since we're trying to find what the author's purpose is, who does the author majorly focus on in this book? We know it's the, the recipients are one, correct? Who else? Jesus and God. Very good. So we got God and Jesus. We have the recipients. Do you think the recipients in this book break down to even two groups? How do you see them break down? Believers and unbelievers. Or right. Okay. So what we have talked about over and over is how this is really a congregational address, correct? It's a pastoral address. So if we look at it from that perspective and simply ask some basic questions about uh, this in relationship to that, if he's giving a, congr a congregational address, so let's do this, let's say Hebrews is a congregational address. Okay, and then what I did is I started from the very first mention of the first major subject in the book. And the very first one, in chapter 1, verse 1, who, who does he first mention in those first two verses? God and Jesus. Let me help you. <laughs> Come on, you guys know this. Flip back to chapter 1 with me. We'll do this together. I want to just go, and it's not going to take us too long to do this. I'm just going to try to give you some points that I came up with, and then you can take this as a starting place for yourself. Go home and kind of look at this again to see if, if what you see when you're done is, helps you to better understand those difficult passages that are in this book. And I, I, for me, it did. It helped me a, a greatly, greatly. Okay, so the first question is, um, what does... Does God, what does the author emphasize in this book about God? Because that was my first question. Since God and Jesus are the first two things that he, he brings up in the book, what is the major thing that he keeps emphasizing about God the Father in this book? Okay, author. Is showing... Okay, God as, and then we're going to fill that in. So the first thing is, it, the first thing then that we see there is that God speaks. And that when he spoke, what was it that he spoke according to the first two verses? He first spoke to whom? Through the prophets, right? And, and, through, and, and then he compared that then to secondarily, then who did he speak through? The son. And in doing that, if you go progressively, chapter by chapter, one, two, three, four, I've gotten up to six so far, and I'm, I needed more time. I didn't get to the rest of it. But when, when he gives you information about what he said through the prophets and then compares it to what he said through the Son, what does he reveal to you about himself? Okay, that he's relational. There you go. That he's the same. In a way, it's kind of what happened in chapter 13. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which was spoken about Jesus himself as well, right? Okay. And when a quote is given to you, right, out of the Old Testament, for instance, one of the subjects comes up is he's after the order of Melchizedek, right? So what is his point when he brings that up, and what does he say about Jesus concerning the quote? 
that he d- he's the evidence, or in other words, it's fulfilled. God speaks it, and then God fulfilled it, right? So he's, he's a God himself when he speaks about Jesus. First of all, he opens in chapter 1. He tells us about Jesus, that Jesus is God, correct? Then later he speaks about Jesus in chapter 3 as being what, what quality? In chapter 3, over his house. Faithful. So would you say... On the whole, as we look at the book of Hebrews, you tell me if this is right or wrong, that it seems to me like God is presented through the prophets and then revealed in the Son as being a faithful God who speaks and then he does what he said. He fulfills it. Would you say that's a major emphasis? When you move into, um, was it chapter 6, where it talks about the truthfulness of his word, right? And he validates it by an a, a oath. That by two things, God is unable to lie. The fact that he speaks truth and, that he, and then he validates it with his covenant, right? Okay, so the author, is, the, the author really is showing us that God is faithful, right? On the whole, that's the major emphasis through the whole book over and over. God speaks, then he shows us how Jesus fulfilled it. Or how God fulfilled it through his son Jesus, right? So let's put that up here. The first point is what God taught through the prophets. And then he compares it to or or shows it fulfilled, right? What God spoke and fulfilled in his son. So this is in 1 1, and this is in 1 2, but and then you see it in 13 8 as well. Somebody flip to 13 8 and tell me what that says, because I don't remember. I just know I write it. We know what 1 and 2 says in chapter 1 that he spoke through the prophets, and now he's spoken to us in his son, correct? Yeah, well, I mean the old covenant. Yeah. Yes. Everything that happened the old right. Covenant was yes. That's exactly right. Now we've, we've absolutely. And, you know, we have seen over and over as we've gone through and we've talked about how Jesus is better than Jesus is better than. We're going to talk about that in just a second also. But in that, what we kept doing was comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. And you can get distracted by that particular point. And think that that's what Hebrews is all about. That, that, that there's a, simply a, the purpose of it is to compare the old covenant with the new covenant, right? Now it's better than. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, I think, in this. And that's why I thought it was important to go back and say, what, if, if, if this is a congregational address, this is a pastor speaking to his congregation, it seems to me like there seems to be four things that he keeps emphasizing. One is something about God. And he brings it up periodically and gives you another point. The other thing is about Jesus, who is our major subject, right? And then the next subdivision of that is his audience itself. What is he trying to say to his audience and who is his audience? So you have to break that audience down to the ones that he refers to as the believers, right? Those who are, who are faith, in faith. But he always caveats it if, 
right, if you are in faith. But then there's those that, that he seems to be making appeal for them to come and enter in. So congregationally, he's speaking to them, not with pointing fingers to anyone specifically, but simply acknowledging that there are probably amongst them some who have not yet entered into faith correct? So covering it that way, I think really helps you set context better. And then when you go back and try to handle those difficult passages, you're going, oh, I see why he said this here. He's not talking to this group. He's talking to this group, right? And I think that's really helpful. Okay, so author is showing God is faithful. That's the first thing that we see contextually in this book. What, and then how does he portray Jesus to us in this book? We know that Jesus is what? He is, he, or G, first of all, Jesus is God, right? And when he is presented to us as God throughout the book on the whole, how, how is he exalted? He is exalted as being what? Better than. Better than. Now, not just the covenant, but better than in general. Better than everything. And he mentions all of these things, right? So he, he, he shows God is faithful. He exalts Jesus as better, right? And when he does it, he says he is a be basically he's a better way to what? Better than the old system to, to approaching God. He's what? He is now a better way to God, correct? Is there a verse that you can remember that says that? That he's a better way to God? Try chapter 10, verse 20. Somebody read that. I'll give you that. Chapter 10, verse 20. Okay, so it's a new and living way. And in that, he's saying it's a better way, right? It's better than the old way. The old way was not living, right? It was through the death of what? Animals. And, were the, and, did the, and when we studied that out about the sacrifices and the covenant and um, even the, the work of the priest itself, did it accomplish for the people... Um, righteousness or salvation or purity, a, a clean conscience before God? No. What was the indicator for the people that they should have understood that even though they were giving blood sacrifices by God's command, it was actually not accomplishing its, its picture, that it really was only a picture? What was the thing that was to give them that indication? First of all, they had to keep doing it over and over and over. It never stopped, right? What else? They had a conscience that itself they knew that they were not, they were not fully made right before the Lord, okay? What was the physical evidence for them that they were not right before God? The veil remained standing in the, in the outer tabernacle. As long as the tabernacle remained standing by that veil, access to God the Father was not made. They could not approach God, right? Okay, so he's better. He's a better way to God, and he's better because he's a better priest. So we looked at that. He's a better sacrifice. Now, these are what you were mentioning, Celeste, just now. And he's a better covenant. 
So those were the three major points about the better than quality of Jesus, correct? That we looked at in those chapter 8, 9, and 10, a better priest, a better sacrifice, and a better covenant, correct? Now, those points are also covered occasionally throughout all the chapters, but those three ones in 8, 9, and 10 specifically show Jesus a better priest, a better sacrifice, and a better covenant. On the whole, he's a better way to God. So let me put on here chapter 8 to 10. All right. So that's about uh, how he is, a, he is showing us that God is faithful and how he exalts Jesus is better. Now, concerning the, the believers, let's start with believers. What is it that he is doing in this book on the whole for believers? What is his intention? There you go. Exhorting, which is our major key verse in the book. Bear with this word of exhortation, correct? Okay, hang on. Okay, that's exactly right. Exhortation. And we buy, um, we buy the work that we've done systematically in this. We've gone back and defined what exhorting actually includes. So as Craig mentioned, exhorting, what all does it include? In, okay, in warning and instructing. So instructing meaning doctrinal teaching. Boy, is there a doctrinal teaching in this book, right? Over and over and over there. Would you call these difficult doctrines on the whole to, to grab hold of? Especially if you're coming out from under that old system. So you're learning everything kind of new. So what this author had to do was he had to present God's word as true, that he was faithful to his true, that Jesus came into the world as God in flesh and he was fulfilling the promises of God right? And then he had to teach them step by step by step how the old covenant pictured Jesus who is the fulfillment of the pictures, right? And we had a couple of verses that very clearly talked about the tabernacle being a copy and a shadow, right, of things that were in the heavenlies. So there's a couple of places in here where he very clearly makes statements that the point in this book is he's showing the picture and showing the reality in Christ, right? Okay, so it's an exhortation to believers. And what is he exhorting them to do ultimately? Okay, he wants them to press into maturity so that they will be what? Holding fast to that. Okay, so they will hold fast to what they know. And in holding fast, they're going to be what kind of people? Faithful. Faithful. (laughs) Teachers too, eventually, but faithful. Faithful. Because the example is who, who was faithful himself? Jesus was faithful. And who else was faithful? God was faithful. God was faithful to his word. Jesus came and he was faithful to the, to the Father and to the word of the Father. And then he exhorts believers to a life of faithfulness, correct? Okay, and I don't have room to put it on here, so I'll just tell you what I've got on here. And how does he go about doing that? He does it by what we said, the word of exhortation. Doctrinal teaching, rebuking, and encouragement, correct? Um, he, he encourages them to endure and to be faithful. In other words, he stressed that basically as an evidence of what? That those who were being faithful were what? Were saved, 
that you belong to God's house if you hold fast and endure to the end, right? So he's giving them instruction as believers, those who are believers, instructing them, the ones of you, if you claim to be a believer and you believe yourself to be in faith, then you are to be faithful. That's what he's exhorting. Is that not what he's exhorting you and I to do? That if you say you love Jesus, you belong to Jesus, then what is the evidence of that? So chapter 4, he talked about the, the ones in the wilderness, right? About Israel in the wilderness. And he said, don't be like those who in the days of Moses fell in the wilderness. Why did they fall? Disbelief because of disobedience. Their disbelief was shown through their disobedience. Disobedience didn't make them an unbeliever. They were an unbeliever and therefore they disobeyed, right? Okay, and so those who want to enter in are to be those who have faith, which does what? Obeys, right? So you and I are encouraged in this book as believers to have a life of faithfulness to God that believes God and that um, basically is obedient to God. What does God say? That's what I will do, right? Okay. All right, so that's my right, there is a verse on this too, by the way. Go to 1038. Let's look at that 1038. Remember in chapter 10, we had the first 10 chapters, we decided there's a, there's a major segment division, correct? Chapters 1 through chapter 10 covers what major segment? What kind of teaching? doctrinal teaching it's the doctrines then in chapter 11 to 13 what is the next um division about application so at the close of chapter 10 there's four verses there that are transitional verses that take you from doctrinal teaching into primarily into um application of what you've been taught doctrinally so what does he say in 1038 that's significant to this point that he is exhorting believers to a, a life of faithfulness. What does it say there? My righteous one shall live by faith. Very good, Don. Exactly. Okay, so now let's look at one more people group. Because so far, I think we've got a pretty good, broader picture of what's going on in the book, on the book in the whole. But we want to look at this one last group because this is the one that helps us, I think, most with the difficult parts of this book. Um, and he's doing what concerning those unbelievers? What does he do? Every time you see a difficult passage, what's going on there? What's he trying to do for them? Encouraging them to come in, but also doing what? Warning them if they don't, right? So in this book on the whole, there is warning to those who do what concerning the word of life that comes to them or the, the gospel which comes to them. If they ignore it, if they refuse it, if they won't obey it, if they won't hold it fast for themselves, right? He says war he is warning those who basically refuse him. And what is he warning them that's coming? A day of destruction or a day of judgment, right? All right, so he's warning those who refuse of judgment.
Okay, I'm going to put this as 1038 was in the one before. I want to make sure I put that up there for you. Okay, and concerning the warning, tell me some of the, let, let's l just look at them, and rather than you trying to dig in through your brain here a little bit. Go to chapter 2, verse 3. Someone else look at chapter 3, verse 19. And 4, 2, and 3. Who's got chapter 2, verse 3? Somebody raise your hand, tell me you've got it. Okay, thank you, Janice. Uh, how about chapter 3, verse 19? Okay, Donna. Uh, 4, 2, and 3? Okay, good, thank you back there. And then uh, what about 10, 26? There'll be one more. Who wants to get it? Okay, thank you. All right, good deal. All right, so start with 2, 3. Tell me what you see in that. Read the verse, and then tell me what you see is the warning there about those who refuse. Wow. Okay. Now, when you consider that particular statement there, he's saying, how will you what? Escape judgment. Now, now that we have broken this book down to see that he's got an audience of two possible receivers of this information, does that verse upset you as a believer? No, it shouldn't. But did it the first time we went through? Yeah, a little bit for some. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think he, he's also talking to believers who are talking about or considering worshiping under the law. Potentially. That would apply to them. Absolutely. That if they were re but what he's actually saying in this book is if you don't hold fast, if you go back, he's making the challenging statement. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you've actually missed. It's also saying, but even if you are, you're going to come into discipline. Yes. Yes, okay, so actually that's a good point because actually in chapter 6, he talks about the ground that's disciplined depending upon what you produce, right? So, no, it sure could be. It can wipe out all, your, all, your, uh, all the things that you thought were these. If you're a person who's considering to go back to the law, for instance, in their day, and you go back to the law and you, and you practice what you believe are holy um, um, acts of worship at the temple and what God is saying in chapter 6 is those works which are not bearing their thorns and thistles right because under under the new covenant Jesus is the way to God but if you're if you're producing thorns and thistles that ground will be burned you're going to lose the reward of that you're not worshiping God at all and God's not going to reward that so that's a good point Craig Okay, so do, you will not, so he says, you won't escape if you neglect so great a salvation. That's in 2.3. What about 3.19? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Okay, and then follow it on with 4, 2, and 3. Where's that one? Okay, so in this point, this one's more specifically narrowed down to who? It's talking about who? Unbelievers. It's actually talking about people who heard the covenant. These are the Israelites who were out in the wilderness. They went to Mount Sinai. They stood there. They said, yes, Lord, we will do all that you have commanded us, right? They, they gave lip service to God, but then what did they do? 
They acted, how, what was their behavior like? According to this passage, disobedience. disobedience. So God says, I'm looking at your disobedience and I'm calling that unbelief. And so God is showing us in that, and he says it again in chapter 6, that God is the one who examines the heart, yes, so he knows whether you're saved or not saved, and he'll judge you accordingly. The believer does not go to hell, but his works can be burned up, right? If they're, if they're acts of unbelief or acts of disobedience to God's principles and his word. But for those who have not actually entered, which is what this particular uh, passage is talking about. He's saying about them, he says, they fell in the wilderness. And what was the picture in that? It's just a picture, correct? So those who fell in the wilderness that he's making reference to fell because of what? Disobedience, Disobedience and unbelief. So it's a picture of people not entering into the land, right? And the land was a, was a picture of what? of salvation pictorially it wasn't salvation but it was a picture of salvation which takes us into the joshua account where he says no joshua didn't give you the rest that i'm speaking of it's something else but it was a picture and that's what he wanted them to see in this book okay and then 10:26 says what this one was the real scathing one you might even want to read uh, the two or three verses all together in there i pulled just the one out but what, what is said in 1026? Okay, so when you hear someone say you're going, going on sinning willfully, in the context of this particular book, what is it that's being conveyed to them? What is the message to them? That, that, well, the, the, that they need, well, kind of, but... I'm, I'm not quite sure that's quite right, but I, I understand. Okay, but he's trying to convey to them what? Yes, and to therefore enter into... Okay. I've lost my train of thought. This is where I'm standing here looking dumbfounded. You're, y'all's answers are great, but I, lo I lost my train of thought. I went into the middle of this, and all of a sudden it went, well, gone. Okay, where was I at in this? We are looking at those who, refu who refuse him, of judgment of him. We've looked at the Israelites who fell. It was a picture of them not entering into the rest of God. Then we go into this one, and he says they go on sinning willfully. Oh, I know. What is the willful sin specifically that he's speaking of here? Rejecting what? Christ and the word that was given to them, right? Because he said, I spoke it through the prophets before, and now I'm speaking it to you in your son. That was the, the one thing that I followed through in mine. Uh, one paper that I'm still working on was to see what, did, what was it that he, he said before, and how did he fulfill it in Jesus? How is it fulfilled through Jesus? And what he's saying is God promised through the prophets a, a Messiah, a seed, a Savior, right? And how did he fulfill that? And then he gives all these quotes in the Old Testament. And he's saying if you willfully reject that, those promises which I have proven to you through fulfillment in the Son, if you refuse that, if you go on sinning willfully, what is left for you? Judgment. There is no way. You can't even come into repentance if you won't believe that. There is, no, there is no avenue for repentance if you refuse to believe the truth, if you refuse the gospel. 
And in this book, over and over and over, that's what he keeps conveying. The gospel is the truth, and through the truth, you come into the rest of God. Right? So, the warning those who refuse judgment, and I'm going to give you the verses 2, 3, uh, 3, 19. I'm just going to put through uh, 4, 3. I mean, because it's that whole section right there. And then 10.26 is part of the verse there that, that conveys that. So, for me, this was what I did to analyze context setting. Now, we have before this said context setting is, it's a letter of exhortation, and his major message is that Jesus is better than. But that in and of itself does not fully help you analyze the difficult passages that come up in here and what seems to be almost a schizophrenic way of addressing these people. Because on the one hand, you say, well, no, he's talking to believers. And it's believers because this and this and this, yes. But then on the other hand, if you say that's true, that he's only talking to believers, then these warnings about judgment are saying that you can lose your salvation and go to hell. Is that true? No. What do we know about inductive Bible study? Two pillars we have. Number one is what? Context rules for interpretation and never violate known doctrines. So you cannot violate your known doctrine about what's true about a believer. A believer cannot lose their salvation, and a believer will never go to hell. However, the ground can be burned, and they can lose rewards, right? Okay, but on the other hand, this book does say if you refuse him and if you go on willfully sinning, there remains for you nothing but fury and the judgment of God. Well, true. Paul, Paul told that too. So it's yes. It's not, but it's not expanded on. It's not a teaching that he elaborates on. It's alluded to, and if you know your doctrines, yes. But it's, yeah. but it's not discussed in this book in detail. He's assuming they know this. Yeah, but I think he's also telling them that you, you can be disciplined. Absolutely. Well, for one thing, the one who obeys gets a blessing from God, right? And so the blessing can be the, in the here and now or the blessing of what's to come. It can be both. So absolutely, yes, yes. Okay, but would you say at this point with this mindset of breaking it down to the four major peoples that he addresses in here and the points that he's trying to make, would, does, that say, does that help you guys at all? with the context of this book on the whole, just saying, okay, I think I'm getting a better idea. And I'm feeling, for me personally, and I've had more time to think on this than you all because I did this myself the last whole week I've been working on this. And last night in particular, I came up with this. And I thought, you know, this helps me better stand in this book as I progressively move from chapter to chapter and thought to thought to say, ah, I see what he's doing. And what's really fun, let me see if I can find my sheet here that I started. Um, it was really fun to go through and look at what God's previously spoken the prophets and what he now has spoken to us in his son. The first thing we see is he quotes in chapter 1 out of Psalms 2 and 45 and 102, right? And he says, in his in his prophetic utterances through these prophets, he said, you are my son, and he speaks of him as being the begotten son, right? And he says about that son in another quote, 
He will sit at my right hand until I make his, the enemies a footstool for your feet. Correct? Well, then when you go into the, op, the fulfillment of that, when you're analyzing chapter 1 and saying, well, how is that fulfilled? He says, he says in those first three verses, Jesus is God, the exact representation, the image of him, right? And he goes on and explains he, he's the creator. He's the one who will rule forever. And he says, your... Uh, your throne, O God, is forever. So he identifies him as being God come in flesh, the creator. And then he says about him at the close, at the close of that, that he, when he came, he made propitiation or he made, there's another word, not propitiation. Um, he made, let me look at it, chapter 1, verse 3. He made something and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I always get that word wrong. Purification. Why do I get that? I keep wanting to say propitiation, which is kind of the same thing. I know, I know. And that's the word. You know, I did that Roman study a long time ago. Propitiation is the one that stuck. But, okay, so he made purification for sin, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So do you see how when I did this, when I analyzed it from the perspective of what he spoke through the prophets and then what he spoke in the Son, and I can make, I can line up in a chart the comparison of those two points and see how it is that God, he is showing God as faithful and that Jesus is better than. I loved that. Okay, because now he's the fulfillment of it. And in the interim, as I think it, Heinz said, is this, this mediator in between in the old. There was this old covenant through Moses, which was inferior, but although inferior, was it good or bad? It was good, and its purpose and function was to do what? To show, to, to reveal sin to them, and eventually to lead them to Christ. It was a tutor to lead them to Christ. Everything in the old system was pictorial for them. And it's one of the points that we saw when we came to, uh, let's see, if which verse... Okay, chapter 4, I'm just going to jump ahead. Chapter 4, in it, it said, he said to them in chapter 4, they had good news preached to them, but it did not profit them because it was not united by faith. Okay, so in that chapter, he begins to talk about what entering into the rest of God is about, right? And he said in, in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 4, God did not give his rest through Joshua. If he had, then he wouldn't have spoken of later through David the things that he spoke, saying, if you hear his voice today, enter in. Why not? Well, because they were already in the land. And if, they were, if entering the land was the rest of God that God had always intended, then why would he say to people who were already on the land, enter in? If you hear his voice, enter in. Well, they were already in. That wouldn't make sense, right? So by that... Quote, by quoting that and revealing that to these people at this time in history, he was saying, look, what Joshua did by bringing the people into the land, that was not entering into the rest of God. That's not the rest of God that God ever intended. It wasn't the, the rest of God he meant. And so then he goes into, um, with Jesus, he says, we also have had good news preached to us, just as they did also, right? And then he says, God's rest is entered through belief in what? What do you have to believe? What they hear, right? And what did they hear? The good news. That's what it says in the, that verse. It talks about it being called the good news. And then he says in verse 9, what? Somebody look that up, 4-9, because it's really cool the way it says it. And you're going to love it once you see that again. Because some people had a question about that verse. Well, what does that mean? 4-9, what does it say? 
Okay, so there remains a Sabbath rest for you to enter into for the people of God. Even yet in the days of this author, he's saying there remains for you a Sabbath rest to enter into if you want. So although the days of Joshua are long past, the people came on the land, even through David, David kept saying, if you hear his voice, enter in. And now today, in the days of this author, he's saying, there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If you want to enter in, come. And entering into the rest of God was not into the land. It was into what? Belief of the, into, in the gospel, which results in salvation. That's right. Okay, so that's kind of what I've been working on. I've been showing what was promised through God, how he was faithful to his word, and then Jesus, how he faithfully fulfilled God's word, and what it is specifically that's told to us before through the prophets and what's now been spoken through the Son. And I'm just making a, a contrast of these two points on my charts. I've gotten through chapter 6. It's pretty tedious work, though, because you really have to think it through. Sometimes you have to make conclusion statements. You're analyzing the text now, not just making a list, but you're analyzing and you're drawing conclusions and you're making the comparison of what he's saying. So, for instance, when I said God did not give his rest through Joshua, it doesn't say that specifically in the text. It's the conclusion that I'm making. And then I'm, comp I'm, I'm comparing that to... The rest of God is Jesus. That's the rest, right? It's belief on Jesus through the good news. All right. So that kind of is context for us for this book. One more time at context from a little different perspective this time, but I think it developed it a little bit bigger. Did, does anybody have any questions or other additional thoughts on this? You're real quiet? Whoa. Okay. Was it helpful? Okay, good. I hope so. I, I, I was very excited about it. You know, To me, it conveys truths and makes points about who God is, who Jesus is, and who his audience is. And on the whole, once you realize that's kind of the bigger picture, it's about who God and Jesus and their faithfulness and how they collaborate through the prophets, what was said, what Jesus did, but then that he's got a double audience, those who are in faith and those who are yet to come into faith. And knowing that it's a congregational address helps you then when you hit those difficult passages. Okay, yay. Whew. That was that. That's our introduction. Your <laughs> introduction done. Let's move on to your homework. Now, this week, what we're going to focus on today in class is chapter 12. And she asked us this question about the relationship of the first 17 verses to the last uh, ones, 18 to 29. So we're going to start by reviewing one more time. What is your major subject in, in the chapter? What is this, the chapter 12 about? I've got to get my chapter 12 open. Major subject in there is what word? Well, there's actually two, but what is the major subject in there? Discipline. discipline. Exactly, disciplining. And concerning discipline, what are we to do? Endure in it. So that's our major, for me, that was just the title I gave to that particular chapter. Endure discipline, okay? All right, so if that's your theme, then let's review again. What did we say one to three was about? This should be by way of review, and you should have it on your observation worksheets. In the column, you should have your titles for your paragraphs. We've already done this once, so tell me what was one to three. Okay. 
fix your eyes on Jesus. We're, and we're, gonna, we're doing this just to help us have a, a place to look, something to look at. Then when we make our comparison of these two parts of the book. Okay, 4 to 11, he tells them to do what concerning discipline? To be what? As sons endure discipline, as sons then also to be what? Okay, you could say be faithful, but let's look at that again. 12. Okay, there's a so that. Remember that anytime there's a term of conclusion, it helps you to culminate everything the author is pointing to, right? He gives you a conclusion statement here in chapter in verse 10. What does he say in verse 10? Is there a so that or a therefore for this reason statement? Why are you to, as sons, be something? What is it that his goal is for them in discipline? To share in his holiness. Remember, the therefores and the, and the so that's and for this reasons are terms of conclusion. If you haven't marked them in a distinctive way, you may miss them when you're trying to decide what that whole thought in that particular part of the paragraph was about. We know the major subject is to endure discipline. And in the next part, we see sons is a key word. So we know it's about the sons. And sons are who? believers, right, the sons, if you're a son, if you belong to him, if you're truly a son, you're to endure discipline for the sake of becoming like him then, is what it says, be son, to, as sons, be holy, or share in his holiness, however you want to say it, correct? Okay, now 12 to 14, what are we to do in that? Pursue sanctification. Good. And this time, sanctification means what? It doesn't mean justification, does it? It means the process of becoming holy. It's that working out of your, of your faith in fear and trembling. Being obedient, walking in a righteous way, or walking in a manner worthy of the calling, correct? So that's sanctification there, is the speaking of sanctification of your, in your faith, once you're in faith. Now in 15 to 17, he gives us a warning, right? Who's the person that he discusses in that 15 to 17? Esau. And so it's a negative, not a positive. He doesn't want you to be this. He's, one, he's telling you not to do something, Correct. Do not what? Don't be like Esau. <laughs> Do not come short of the glory of, of God's grace. And then I put below it, like Esau. Like Esau did, correct? Because he gives that as, or as, as Esau did. Okay. That is the first part of it. Now we have a, a section in here in the middle that we're going to discuss in just a minute. Let's go on and finish out, though. Let's look at 18 to 24 as our next paragraph. What is going on in 18 to 24? It's comparing two mountains, correct? And so 
in essence, by comparing two mountains, what is ultimately really being compared? Two covenants, an old and a new. So the emphasis for us is going to be on which one? The new. So what is it that we learn in there for concerning um, uh, this new covenant? What is it that's the major point in there that he's saying to us about it? Well, that we're looking for the, a city of where the, 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 show me which verse are you in? Okay, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. So he's telling you what the mountain of Zion is. It's the heavenly one. So he's clarifying for us that, correct? But concerning the covenant, what is he telling us about it? How is it compared to the old? Who is the mediator of the first one? Moses. And who is the mediator of this one? Jesus. So he's saying to us, Jesus is mediator of something that's new, and he's contrasting it with what they came out of, what they had in the old, right? In this book on the whole, we know Jesus is better than, right? That's our, one of the major subjects here. So Jesus is better than. He's now being portrayed in these few verses as the covenant is better, and Jesus is better than Moses, and he's a mediator of a better covenant, correct? So it seems like a switch in conversation, doesn't it? It's like, uh, okay, we were flowing along really nicely, and now we made a jump, didn't we? Okay, 18 to 24 then, he says, he, he's making a, a declared a statement that Jesus is mediator of a better covenant. Okay, now, this, without much discussion here, let's just move on to 25 to 27 and see what the next point is. What does he say in 25 to 27 to this audience? There you go. Do not refuse him. Do not refuse him who? Jesus, who's the mediator of this new covenant, correct? Then he's another subject. Now, again, another jump here. But I think our, our context setting is really going to be helpful at this point. 28 and 29, what does he say? And who do you think he's addressing? <laughs> what does he say there? There you go. In gratitude to God, you are to show gratitude to God. How? There you go, by an acceptable service. So here he says, in gratitude, offer to God acceptable service. Now, what would not be acceptable service? There you go, going back to the old temple and sacrificing, because that would not be fruitful vegetation that would be thorns and thistles and that work will be burned up right and he's saying but there is actually an acceptable service now what does he follow chapter 12 with what is our major thought in this one our major key word in chapter 13 What is the major key word in chapter 13 that you see repeated, repeated, repeated? It's a bunch of do's, right? Do this, do this, do this. And what is one of our major key words in this book? Let us. So he follows 
In gratitude to offer God acceptable service, he follows it in chapter 13 with a whole bunch of let us statements, correct? That flow of thought actually fits, doesn't it? It it does well. But the question that she had for us then was, well, how does chapter uh, uh, 12 verses 1 to 17, how does that relate to 18 to 29? They seem to be a little disconnect here, correct? Let's go back to our context. What is this author doing? Who is this author? We don't know. Well, we don't know specifically who he is, but who do we see him as in this particular epistle? He's a preacher. He's a pastor. He's addressing a congregation. He's preaching a what? Sermon. In this sermon, in chapter 1 to 10, what does he do? He teaches them doctrine, right? Then he gets to the part about application, starting in 11. And what does he do once he finishes at the end of 15 to 17? What, is, what would you say on the whole right here, this would be, as far as classifying between application or doctrine, what would you say it is? He's telling them to endure. That's true. He is telling them to endure, and that is application. You're right. But what has he taught them in here? about sons and about pursuing sanctification and not coming short of, the, of God's um, doctrine. In other words, okay, let me, t- let me take you one thing. He says in, in chapter 12, verse 7 and 8, go back and read those two verses for me real quick. We're going to look at one word, and this is where Craig has been capitalizing almost from the very beginning. He picked up on this really, really early. And it's taken us this long to get to this point, though, to be able to really discuss it well. There is a word there. Oh, I thought I turned that off. Uh, well, whoa. <laughs> I can't find my phone. I'm sorry, you guys. Oh, I see it. I thought I turned my phone off. I guess I turned it the wrong way. It probably was already off, and I turned it back on. That's what happened. Okay, that was my text message. Now you know. All right, so now... Okay, so read 7 and 8, somebody. Who's going to read that for me? It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. But what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Okay, so in there, we know that he's talking here, as sons... Endure discipline, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus. As sons be holy, pursue sanctification, and do not come short of the grace of God. There's a doctrinal teaching in here about who are sons and who are not. Correct? And he, but, he's, but more than that, he's actually trying to convey to them a truth about someone who does become a partaker as a son. So what you have to understand is what is that word partaker speaking about? Okay, did anybody happen to do in the past a study on the word partaker? Okay, go ahead. Yes, it is. It's metakoi, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S. It's number 3353. And what does it mean? Well, the first use of it in Hebrew is his companion. Yes. Um, he was above his, above his companions. Uh-huh. 
Very good. A partner or a sharer or a companion. What does that make you think about, especially when you consider what we move into here? Someone who is a partner or a sharer is in what? In covenant with God. So it's a word that can be associated. It's not always because like, for instance, the one in that verse that you quoted where he's above his companions, who are the companions that are being spoken of there? Okay, I would, I would probably agree with that now yeah. because I, we've done this long enough and I'll, after connecting it with these other verses, which I'm going to share with you in one second. Because he said that... He, where it's where it leads into that really matters, right? One nine, he's, he's talking about Jesus who's inherited, he's, he's been appointed the heir of all things, he's inherited a better name, but he has, and the reason he has done that is because he has loved righteousness and lawlessness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Okay. And then later it talks about him, uh, his brethren, you know. Right, and the brethren. And that's in the, cha uh, what chapter is that again? That's in? That's, that one I just read was 1-9. One nine. Nine. Okay, and, it, and it, pre it precedes just before he goes into chapter 2, where it talks about who? Men, about Jesus being the help to man. Correct? So the idea that he speaks about companion, him being exalted above his companions in chapter 1, verse 9, makes sense now that I'm done with all this work. I can tell you in the beginning, it sounded like the companions were saying that he was greater than the angels. And almost all the teachings that you go online will say that that's what it's talking about, that he's greater than the angels. Right? Right? Okay, but, but the reality is once you connect this through the whole text of Hebrews, where every time he uses this word, 3353, which is metakos, it means partner, fellow, sharing, it actually means a sharing in spiritual life, and it means partaking or participation in, that's another way of defining it. Let's look at it in a couple of other places. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Same word. Somebody read it. Okay, there it's used again. And in that context, is it really clear who he's speaking about? Who are the partakers? Those who enter into that faith, right? Enter into the rest of God. Okay, now go to verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. Again, it's used. Okay, if we hold fast our assurance, that's the, in other words, there's evidence whether or not you have or you haven't. And the evidence is that you are holding firm. And if you're holding firm, it's evidence that you are a partaker, okay? So the idea of becoming a, endure, uh, endure discipline as sons of God, and he's saying because you are partakers. All right, now go to 6-4. Six, six, Did I give you that one yet? No, 6-4. Okay. 
Okay, so here he's saying about those if they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So he's literally saying partakers. Again, a sharing in, in other words, if they've genuinely entered into salvation, right? But, but he's saying if, if they become partakers. Okay, so now we go to 12.8, and let's look at it again. Okay, so what is it telling us then about partakers? If you are a partaker, meaning you've entered into covenant with Jesus, if in fact that's true, then what have you become also enjoined with? What else is going to be a part of your relationship with Jesus as a covenant partner with him? Discipline, right? He says you have, you, well, let me read it again. If you are without discipline, of which all, all who, all who are in faith, if you are in faith, you have become partakers of discipline. Think on that for five seconds. Does it make you think of anything that Jesus ever said to those who want to follow him? Say it out loud. Someone said it. Bingo. If you, if you want to follow me, if you want to become a partaker of me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. Let's look at two verses. Uh, one is in Matthew 10.38. The other is in Mark 8.34. Let's look at those two. Yes. Wow. So if you won't endure discipline, you're not worthy of me. In other words, you aren't of me and you aren't worthy of me. Right? But you ha if, you are willing, if you are willing to endure discipline and pick up your cross and follow me, it's an indicator that you are a partaker of me. Okay? Now go to Mark 8.34. Oh, so, so he can consider it and maybe think about it, and if he decides he wants to, then he can follow me? Or can I follow you even if I don't want to pick up my cross? I could just leave my cross and follow you anyway? No, it does not say that. He says he must pick up his cross and follow me. So in other words, this is a doctrinal teaching about those who actually are partakers in Christ. If you're a partaker, guess what comes with the package deal? In covenant, two become one. What did Jesus say about his sufferings? They hated me first, right? So what are they going to do? They're going to hate you also. And he says, you must be willing to endure that for my name's sake. So when he says that, follow, look at the verse uh, 7 that's preceding it. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons for what son is there that his father would not discipline. So discipline is the goal in relationship with God. And he's saying, you must be willing as, as in covenant it should be, to become one, you are in total identification with. And just as Jesus said of the Father, I only do what the Father does. I only say the things that the Father has said. I only, you know, I'm only participating in activities that are from the Father and that he tells me to do. That's what our life is supposed to be. And it's for discipline that you endure. 
And so he says, it, basically, this is the high calling in Christ Jesus, that you partake in discipline. I think about even this, this homework assignment that we've done this throughout all of Hebrews. These months and months of grueling work to try to unravel this very challenging book that is the most controversial book in the New Testament. I think it's probably the most controversial book in the whole Bible. People argue and argue and argue about what's being said in this book. And so here you are, at the end of this, we have, we have, you know, trudged through it and hung in there, and we are, at the end of this, going to have a discipline that can only be brought out through enduring. If you don't, if you gave up and walked away, what would you have gained? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Now look where you've come, and where you've come from, and where you are now, and how much more you actually can grab hold of. You still may not feel totally secure in every point. Neither do I. But I can tell you, on the whole, I'm really feeling secure now. I've got this bigger picture of who he's talking to and why he's saying the things that he's saying. And what used to be real controversial to me in my mind now makes sense because he's got a, he's got a double audience, believers and unbelievers, and he's talking to a congregation. And he doesn't know who is and who isn't. He's just, in generality, saying... You can't, don't refuse him. There's judgment coming. And he's saying for the rest of you, if you're, if you're in faith, be faithful and endure to the end. Right? That's the evidence of your faith. It's the high calling of faith in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 5 of Jesus himself, who's saying, pick up your cross and follow me, he says in chapter 4, verse 5, that he was tempted but did not sin. And in chapter 5, verse 8, he says he learned obedience in suffering. He's talking about the cross. And he was faithful to God, even to the cross. Now, there's another place that says that you haven't, you haven't endured suffering to the point of shedding blood. Jesus did. He's our highest calling of example that we're to follow, right? If the major subject in here is faithfulness, God was faithful, Jesus is faithful. He's saying, you be faithful also. And then he says in uh, 727, and he endured suffering unto death. So we are called to pick up our cross and follow him. So that's what this first section of, is all about, correct? Okay, you've just had a sermon. The sermon is all about doctrines, about how Jesus is better than, how he fulfills everything, how he is God come in flesh. He is the fulfillment of what God has always promised, the promises of God. Now he says, now, pick up your cross and follow me, right? Then the next thing he says, this is a new covenant. And then he has two points to make. Do not refuse him, and then be faithful, right? In gratitude, offer to God acceptable service. So what has he just done? What has he just done if he's giving a sermon? An altar call. He just gave an altar call. He finished his congregational address. He concludes it with, pick up your cross and follow me, kind of a statement, right? He, and he says, as sons, endure discipline. And then he says, now, it's a new covenant. It's not, and he compared the old and the new one more time, one last time. And then he says, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Don't refuse him, but offer to him acceptable service out of gratitude. Okay, so what do you think? We have down here an al his altar call. Up here he concludes doctrines, 
of sonship. And he says, follow me, basically. Meaning Jesus, right? He concludes the doctrine of sonship, and he says, follow me, meaning Jesus. His altar call then, he, he restates that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And then he said, it's a call to faith, or call into faith for some, right? And then it's a call to faithfulness for others. We used to call that in my church rededication or recommitment or whatever. He would say, okay, are you with me? Are you with me, congregation? Are we going to do this? Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to offer God acceptable service and gratitude for what he's done for this so great a salvation? That's what he's doing. He's offering them an altar call. For those not yet in faith, he says, don't refuse. For those that are in faith, he's saying, be grateful and show gratitude through service. And does that not fit with here, that he is faithful, Jesus was faithful, right? And he, now he says, you be faithful. Isn't that cool? What a beautiful way this all begins. Now, now he starts, like we said, in chapter 13, with the major uh, emphasis being the let us, where he's just concluded about showing acceptable service. Now he's going to explain to us in chapter 13 what acceptable service is. It is not what? Not going back to the works of the law. Not going back to the temple sacrifices. Not going back to your old way of approaching God. You have now entered into a new and living way to approach God. It's better than the old way. Now show gratitude by acceptable service. Not unacceptable service. That's the contrast, right? So you guys did. Now let's just do this. Let's see how much time we've got. We got some time. Good. Let's go back. I want to take you through your general work. Now, I'm not going to write all this part on. What I'm going to write up here are your paragraph themes. We're going to cover paragraph themes. But I just want to say, what were your keywords? We, we just talked about let us as a keyword. What are some other keywords in chapter 13? They were tough to find. Really tough because everything's a, a, like a fresh statement, right? It's all a let us, let us. That's why I started with let us as your first major key word, okay? Were there any other things that kind of... I almost had to draw some conclusions. He's really, he's really talking about two things about a person. What he does and what he thinks, Right? Sort of, would you say that? It's kind of about conduct and character. And between those two things, each of these points are addressed, either in conduct or character. And who else is major in this particular chapter again? You should have marked them, right? Jesus and God. Okay, so Jesus and God. God, to me, really was the major, major. It's like he started with God. In between was all Jesus, and then at the end, he, he brings you back to God again, who is faithful and fulfilled all these things through his son. But Jesus is God. So now he goes back to God, and he says, offer to God acceptable service. And now he says about, about that, let us do all these different things. Now, did you happen to look for contrasts when you did your observation worksheets? You should have, right? Everybody knows to do contrast when you do your, your basic observations, correct? Tell me what are your, some of your contrasts. Are you looking for them right now or did you do them? 
<laughs> I hope you did them. Because what do contrasts do for us in inductive process work? What's the purpose of looking for contrasts? Okay, say it again. Okay, what's going on in, the, in that particular message at that point in the book? And in this point of the book, it's let us commandments. And by looking at contrast, he's comparing then what you're to do versus what you're not to do, basically, right? Let us, let us, let us, but the, the contrasts are there. So in chapter 1, or in verse 1 and 2, the major emphasis is to do what? Love. To love. But in verse 2, then you're not to do what? Neglect. So love and neglect are the contrast in verse 1 and 2, okay? Don't love, I mean love, but don't neglect. And then there's, you can break that down in more detail, but that's the simplest point of it, okay? What about in verse 4? There's a contrast there too. What is the subject? The marriage bed, okay? And what are you supposed to do concerning the marriage bed? Honor it. So honor the marriage bed, and the contrast is to not what? No, no fornication and adultery. So the subject matter there is about sexual purity, correct? Okay, honor the marriage bed, but don't, don't commit acts of fornication and adultery. Boy, that one we could preach on forever, very uncomfortably, of course, in mixed co company. However, this is a major problem in the church today. We have a lot of people who walk into the church and they are engaged habitually in this kind of thing, and yet they claim to be a Christian. What does God say? Pick up your cross and follow me. It is for holiness that you endure discipline. Right? Okay. Preaching over. Okay. <laughs> chapter 5, <laughs> or verse 5, rather, of chapter 13. What is your contrast? Love of money, and, and if you're not loving money, you're going to be content. Very good, Martha. All right. And in... Let's go to verse uh, 7, 8, 9. We're supposed to do what? Remember them and do what? Imitate them. So remember and imitate people of faith, right? Men and women of faith. Of which, by the way, our first example is Jesus, who is in verse 7 what? Or I think it's the 7. 8. Verse 8, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Interesting the way that verse is added in there. We're going to talk about that more in detail next week. Okay, so hang on to that one, but for right now, just note that it's in relationship to who, who is it that you're to actually ultimately be to imitate. Okay, so you're to imitate faith versus what you're not supposed to do. Get carried away by strange teachings. Very good. Are, are you picking up on this? Are, is this helping you? This is the best way, if you're wanting to study inductively and break it down so that you're really grasping the the major points of what's going on, if you look for your contrast, it really helps you weed out all the details and just hone in on the major, you know, love versus neglect, right? Um, honoring uh, the marriage bed versus fornication. Contentment versus loving money, which is greediness, right? Imitating faith versus following strange teachings. So now in verse 10 and 11... There's a contrast there. It's not. Ex it's a little, a little bit more challenging to find it, maybe. But tell me what you see as contrasted. We have versus what they have. Okay, and it is. 
Okay, but that one, okay, hang on to that because Jesus' own blood is actually contrasted with something in verse 11. What blood? The blood of animals. So the blood of animals is contrasted with the blood of Jesus in 11 and 12, but in 10, you said there's a, there's a contrast there of, of what two altars, what two kind of, of altars. An altar that we serve at, that they have no right to, by the way, and it's being contrasted with what? The high priest, which is their holy place, what they call the holy place. So it's a contrast between their altar and our altar. And it's distinctive. Isn't that cool? Do you think that's an important po point that he's bringing out for this particular audience? That the, the altar that we serve at versus the altar that the Jews are still serving at? Yeah. And it's in this verse that we clearly identify that the temple is still standing. So it's before 70 AD. So you might want to make a note on that. Now, yeah, you go. that's a good, and you did that analytically came to those conclusions, right? Okay, very good. All right, now let's go to verse 14. This one's easy, and you guys have picked up on this a couple of times already. Sicking a city, and the first one is one that does not what? Does not last. So a no lasting city that's here, and it's contrasted with what, what are we seeking? A city to come. Yeah. Okay, and then in 17, he's talking about leaders and that we're to follow them, right? For the purpose that they might lead how? With joy, not with what? Not with grief. So that will help you next week, I think, with your homework. Because we are going to go systematically through each of those points next week, and we're going to elaborate on those in detail about what is that exactly those things mean? We'll be doing some word studies possibly and lots of cross-referencing. Yeah. It will help us tomorrow. Yeah, if we do our homework tomorrow, yeah. For me, it'll be, yeah. After my break, my brain needs to rest. Okay. All right, so now let's just go back and do what we always like to do, or at least what I like to do with you, and that is do the paragraph flow of thought. Those contrasts, however, are going to help you in identifying your paragraph breaks as well. Can you see, can you all see that? that? How the contrast will help you see where you break in your thoughts? Okay, so let's start the first one. We see verses one to three. And what are we to do? May, oh, let's, let's title this first. Let's get our major theme. I'm sorry. Let's do this. Theme. Book theme or chapter theme. What is going on here on the whole? It is a word of exhortation to do something, right? The let us is on there. So the let us is that what we are doing. What are we doing in this on the whole? Don't name a specific item, but what are we doing on the whole? Acceptable service, it would, that would be a good conclusion, although it's not in this. Is there a way of that acceptable service is restated in this chapter? Let me give you some verses. Verse 15, verse 16, and verse 21. Look at those three verses. 15, 16, and 21. You might want to make a list on this. The, this is on the whole what's going on in this book. Somebody read 15.
Wow. So he's just told us to show gratitude and to offer God acceptable service. For there he says, let us do this, correct? So let us do this for God, yes? Yes. There you go. So please, good job. Okay, so major keywords, let us, and to please God. Correct? That's your secondary major, because everything else is a subject, a subject, a subject, a subject. But the subjects relate back to doing what? Pleasing God, right? Let us please God. Gee, that would be a good title, maybe, right? Let us please God, or is there any other way you might want to say it that's more pleasing to you? Could be just let us please God, uh, please God doing his will. Could be, I mean, there's a variety of ways you could pull out of 15, 16, and 21, any kind of phraseology that accomplishes that. And so I'm just going to put on here, let us please God. That's acceptable service, right? Okay, now let's go back and do verse 1 to 3. How are we going to please God in 1 to 3? Okay, show love to others or to one another or whatever. And, and, it, and it, there's more details about how that is done or not done, but... But on the whole, would you say that takes care of one to three, that we are to show love? Okay. What do you see in four to six? In there, it's talking about two major things. About One's about marriage and one has to do with money. Both of these... Cover one particular subject that's mentioned in verse 5. Character. Has to do with your character, doesn't it? How you... Um, the purity of, of character is really an important thing. So um, he says to... Marriage is to be held in honor, and you're to make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Can you combine honor and character together? Because that way you pull it from the text, right? How about have an honorable character? And that would cover the, both of those subjects, right? And then how you're, you're doing that, he explains in here. All right, seven to nine is our next paragraph. It's how I broke it. If you choose to break it some other way, it's fine. But you're right. It is. I didn't see it. I didn't see the idea of spiritual because it doesn't say the word spiritual. But in place of the word spiritual, what does it talk about? What is, what is the major subjects in there? The word of God, right? And by the word of God, you're to be what in verse 9? Be strengthened by grace in the word of God, right? So that spiritual care, that's exact, you're exactly right, Craig. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's like a contrast then, isn't it? Or not a contrast, but it's like 
first we're talking about your, your uh, character, and now we're talking about your spiritual purity. That's good. By God's word and grace are the two things that I picked up in there. Be strengthened by grace, not foods. There's a contrast, correct? Because in the case of being strengthened by grace, not foods, and that being another contrast, which we didn't discuss, but it's another contrast in here, what is, what is he alluding to there? What are the foods it's talking about? The law. Exactly. And rather, you're to be strengthened by grace. So in, in the new covenant, which he just explained to us, Jesus is mediator of something that's better, in it, it's a covenant by what? Grace. grace. Do you remember the chapter that said how, how it's, one day I'm going to make a new covenant with you? It's not going to be like the old, right? I'm going to take the spirit, I'm going to place it on your heart, move your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. And in this one, rather than you being judged where I will no longer care for you, he says at the beginning of that, but in this one, I will, I will always love you and it'll be by grace. I love that. So here again, be strengthened by, then by God's word and grace. Okay? What is the next paragraph? Well, obviously it starts at 10, correct? Well, there's a, a four statement in 11, and there's another one in 13 that says, 12 that says, therefore, there's a so in 13, and there's a four in 14. But it seems like starting in 10 all the way through 14, there's a subject that's being compared, Right? about a sacrifice, and the sacrifice is comparing the blood of Jesus with the blood of animals, which is what Celeste brought up, right? And so in that, in that, in conclusion, he says, so there, he concludes it in verse, verse 13, so then let us do what? Go outside the city, right? Go outside the camp, and what are you seeking in the very conclusion verse that follows that? the city that is yet to come, right? So do we totally grab hold of what that whole verse is about, that whole chapter is about yet? No. Why not? We have one more week of homework. <laughs> you are going to get to do cross-references. You're going to go into the Old Testament. You're going to read about that idea, about the sacrifice that's taken outside the city. You're going to look at also what happened through Moses and the people in the wilderness and how the, the, the tabernacle ended outside of the camp and what that symbolically is a picture for. So in this one, you're going to do what in 10 to 14? To please God, you're going to do what? Where are you going? You're going outside the camp. Now, in just by a shot in the dark of what you think that might mean, what is the camp talking about? What is the picture of? But what's the camp? Going outside of the camp, what's the camp? For the Jews. Jerusalem and the temple area. Go outside the camp, okay? Because he's talking to them about a new covenant, and we're to leave the camp 
of the old system and go outside of it, just as Jesus did, went outside the camp where he suffered. Okay, go outside the camp, uh, and you're there you're going to be seek, oops, seeking the city to come. That's right, outside of the old assembly in entering into a new assembly. Right. That's exact. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, right? And, and don't go back and seek the old assembly. Come outside the camp seeking the city that is to come. You're starting to already starting to get some of it, I'll bet, in your mind. A little bit better. Okay, let's go to 15 and 16. We will go into detail on the, all these points next week. We just want to get the outline going here. Yeah. Yeah, give, give sacrifices pleasing to God. And what are the sacrifices here? What does he tell us they are? Yeah. So, because rather than using the word sacrifice, which leaves you... Um, in some regards, especially for if you're an Old Testament thinker, it would take you back to blood sacrifice. Instead, in this case, instead of blood sacrifice, he's saying give sacrifice, which is giving thanks to God. It's the, it's the, the lip service of praise to God, right? Give thanks to his name. Yes. Give thanks to his name. And I love that. This phrase, his name, giving thanks to his name, it just doesn't mean say thank you, Jesus. It means, to, it means give thanks to all his name depicts and presents. What are some of the things that God's name depicts to you? What do you know about it? Okay, he, that he's your savior. Oh. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, okay, that he's our, yes, that he gives help to man, that he's our helper, his savior, our provider, that he's sovereign, that he's, that he's sacrificial, that he's faithful. All the things that God is, that's what we are to give praise for him, give thanks. <coughs> Sorry, got a choke. And see, and Craig, you mentioned something else. Give thanks to his name and... Okay, either sharing or doing good. <clears throat> very interesting by giving thanks to his name also it almost as though the result of that would be doing good and sharing as well okay we have verse 17 is standing alone <clears throat> right because the verse 18 gives us a whole nother subject so in 17 what are we to do Okay, obey and submit to leaders. Basically to your spiritual leaders. You should probably add that word in there. It doesn't say it, but that's what the implication is, to your spiritual leaders. Yep. And then 18 and 19.
Yes, exactly. Remember those who spoke the word and consider their lives and imitate their faith. It sure does. Good. Let them do this with joy and not grief, right? I would have to say that's a good word of exhortation to a congregation, wouldn't you say? To not cause grief to your leaders unduly. Now, obviously, if there's heresy going on in a church, it needs to be addressed. But on the whole, that's not the case, right? Okay, in 18 and 19, what are we to do? Pray. Pray for us, he says specifically, but the implication is praying on the whole, praying for one another, right? Okay, now I'm going to draw a line here because we see another little switch here between what's up here on the let us statements, and now he's going to do something in 20 and 21 where he's not saying let us, is he? What does he do in 20 and 21? There you go. It's a benediction or a doxology, right? And in that doxology, what does he tell you? What is a doxology? Do you know what the doxologies are? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right, okay, so I won't sing that anymore because I'm not a good singer. All right, so when you sing a doxology, you're giving praise to God, and you're saying about God what is true. Correct? And it's the way of closing things down to bring you back to the folk, your focused attention back to the one who does what for you according to 20 and 21? He will equip you and what else will he do? He will work in you. He will equip you and he will work in you. After he just got through telling you all these things that he wants you to do, he's saying he's going to equip you and he's going to work in you. Isn't that awesome? Grace, 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 grace. God's telling you what to do, but you don't have to worry. God is going to work in you, and he's going to help you in it. God will equip you, and he will... Okay, so let's put that on there. God will equip and work in you. I'm going to write up here, this is doxology. Uh, there's... Uh, there's another way they call it, too, not doxology. There's another one. Benediction, a benediction. Okay? And then 22 to 25 is obvious. After a pastor finishes his sermon and he gives you the doxology or the benediction and he's, and he's ready to send you out, then what does he say to you in 20 to 25? Blesses he blesses you. And, who, and how does he close it? What's the last thing he says? Grace be with you all. Isn't that cool? Does that not look like a perfect sermon now that we see it that way? Grace be with you all. So that's his parting words or his closing up of his sermon as he finishes with his congregation that morning. Can you imagine sitting through a whole sermon this long? <laughs> Yes, yes. Right. And it. Well, and this one got written, so it was sent out, and it was sent along the circuit of that day. And at each church, whoever their leader was would have read this to their congregation from the, pa the pastor that gave this initially. 
Absolutely. And when they came and gathered, it was an all-day affair. So they didn't come for a one-hour sermon. They came in the morning after they'd eaten probably their breakfast and they traveled and arrived and got there at some point in the morning. And then they stayed through the day and they would break bread together. That's why it talked about the breaking of bread and waiting on one another and, you know, all those kinds of things that are spoken of like in Corinthians. And then they would go back to their sermon and they would finish. So this was a long sermon. But they probably did it over, the, over a whole day and potentially even more than one day. I mean, in some cases. But he get, at least had a, a full several hours to go through this as a sermon. Yes? I kind of had a, a little bit of a different take. Uh-huh. I looked at, it starts with let love of the people. Yeah, but all of these things they say are part of love, as opposed to not neglect. Right. You know, and I thought, in the flesh, we tend to think of ourselves, not others. Yes. And we don't care about them. So he's, he's saying, remember. Well, and you know, and when you think of it, okay, go ahead. Going on, he's saying, um, all of these words are encouraging you to uh, think of others as yourself, to be there with them, etc. And then he said, and then you, you know, and then it's almost like you don't have to worry about money. And all that, you will be content if you're doing that because he is your provider. Yes, 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 yes. So it's instruction about how they're going to go through the let us statements of giving God acceptable service. But that's why he, he follows it with that doxology. God will equip you and he will work in you. So you, all these things, he's going to do it in you. That's right. That's right. Yes. I think you came to the same conclusion. It is. It's just, uh, you know, let us do this. Let us please God. And he shows how. Because he, st- he, start, he ends the previous chapter with to show gratitude to God by acceptable service. But because of the congregation that he's speaking to, he has to elaborate on what acceptable is. Because they, for whatever reason, apparently are, are potentially going back to the old way of pleasing God, which was sacrifices at a temple. And, and he's saying that you can't do that. You're now in a new covenant, and it's a better covenant. And it's a new way to approach God, right? And so then he elaborates on what that is. One of the failures of Israel as a nation was the way they treated one another, how they were dishonest in their di- business d- dealings. They weren't taking care of the widows and the orphans, and uh, they were cheating one another at, at right and left, and Right? So these were some of their sins. And would you say those are still sins we s- suffer with today? Yes. Yeah. I would say a lot of this is trust and obey. Too. Trust and obey. Yes, exactly. All right. I'm a singer this morning. Why is that? <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. Forgive me. Pray for me, please. <laughs> All right. We did well. We got done a little early. Oh, boy. Lo- Lois would be very happy. Thank you, guys. I'll see you next week. One more week to go and we're all done.